sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the wait, Pirate wait, Monk Wait, 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 wait. What, what are you doing, Nate? I'm doing the podcast, buddy. But but you're acting like you're the host. You're not the host. This is the 300th episode. We have a different host. You're the guest today with me. I'm sitting here with a cup of tea ready to just not do any work at all. You can't start it off. <laughs> Tom, Tom. That's right. That's right. Our good friend Tom Ryan agreed to come in and host the big 300th episode. Yeah, so let's give him a call. Beep, all right. boop, okay. boop, 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 boop. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Tom, are you there? Yeah. Hi, hey. Aaron. Hi, Nate. Would you, would you mind hey, uh, doing us a favor today? We need a host for the 300th episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Would you be game? Oh, uh, this takes me back to uh, Mike Myers' movie and seeing Dana Carvey go, "Not worthy, not worthy, not worthy." <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's all right, well, dating Tom, myself, isn't it? Tom, bring us yeah. in. I've stopped dating myself. Uh, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Good idea. Good idea. <laughs> hey, listeners, welcome to this 300th episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast with Nate Larkin and Aaron Porter. And for just this episode, I'm your host, Tom Ryan. So grateful to be here. Nate and Aaron, um, your podcast has meant a ton to a lot of us, uh, me included. I'm a faithful listener. And uh, so appreciate you, too. Um, you have gotten a lot of questions that have come in. I've looked them over. Uh, we're going to try and go through a number of these. We won't be able to get to everybody's. Um, <clears throat> but there's some really great stuff we want to talk about and celebrate this 300th podcast. Um, first, I want to ask you, too, because a lot of our listeners probably don't know this. I'm not sure I'm clear on it. When did you two first meet? How did that happen? Well, which one of us is going to answer that? I, I, I've got more of the, the backstory leading up. You only get to the phone call. Okay, you go ahead. Uh, the, the quick version is I was asked by a group of college students. Uh, th- they wanted to put on their own weekend conference on, let me try to remember, masturbation, uh, dating boundaries, fantasy, and porn. And I was just so happy that they wanted to just do this for themselves, these like 250 or so guys, that I said, yeah, of course I'll do that. Then I thought, wait, I have to sit there and talk for two days about masturbation with 250 guys? That's okay. So as it got closer, I was uh, feeling less and less motivated. Not to mention, as Nate probably knows, whenever you have to start doing all this research into porn and have stuff to say, it just becomes very dark to spend that much time focusing on it. So anyways, there was a singer from San Diego that came to town that I was, uh, got to play some music with. And we went out to lunch with a group afterwards and somehow the conference came up and I complained and she said, Oh, this guy just came and spoke to our church. Was that the first time you had gone out speaking on this Nate? No, actually I wasn't a church. Uh, I spoke for an artist's retreat, a World Vision artist retreat in Florida, and Sylvia had uh, had attended. And you, had, yeah, I'd gone there with one of my Samson guys. Yeah, but you had just mm-hmm. started speaking on this, right? 
Right, right, right. I I hadn't uh, hadn't traveled and spoken at a church yet. That was the first thing I did, actually. Yeah, was speak at that artist conference. So she she said, "I know a guy that might be willing to talk about porn and masturbation," and she <laughs> she gave me Nate's phone number, and I called <laughs> Nate, and we talked for a long couple hours. And by the end of that conversation, it was like, "Oh, I don't want to waste Nate on masturbation. I'd rather have him come talk about authentic community and brotherhood." And uh, yeah. so we set that up and talked more on the phone. And uh, Nate said he didn't want to go alone, so he told his Samson brothers, and twenty-one of them bought plane tickets and flew with him to California. And we had that weekend together. Tw- wait, twenty-one yeah. guys f- from like yeah, yeah. That's incredible. There, there were more guys yeah. from his group than were at certain of the <sighs> sessions we set up in the two-day event we put on. <laughs> Well, you know, I was still in SA at the time, and my sponsor said I could do it as long as I wasn't unaccompanied. So, you know, I asked at the Samson meeting whether anybody wanted to go, and a whole bunch of guys volunteered. So, and I will say, we all went. The, it was great. The Baptist Church credit card had never paid for as much beer as it did that weekend with twenty-two pirate <laughs> monks coming from Franklin, Tennessee. <laughs> Thank you, American Baptist uh, Credit Union. Yeah. And, you know, that was so good for our Samson group. That that really was a pivotal time for the Franklin, Tennessee Samson group, because together we did service and mission. We went together to give it away. We had to think about how, what's the best way we can communicate this to other people? Well, that's and the you know what, what? Yeah, that's the gospel. What, what sticks out to me about that weekend, you know, first of all, getting to meet Aaron for the first time and, and his dad and hang with some of the people. Uh, you know, we flew in on a Friday night and flew out on a Sunday morning. So we only had Saturday there. And we set it up so that that first half of Saturday, for all of late in the morning on into the afternoon, we did what we called a Samson mini camp, uh, where we were just going to demonstrate how Samson's done. We would talk about the principles. We would run programs. Uh, run. We would run uh, meetings, and we would send guys off on temporary Silas walks. Um, and then we planned a big event for that night—a show that we called "Escape from Isolation Island." Now, for the mini camp, we outnumbered the participants. <laughs> there were more of us than there were of them, right? That night, well, they were very excited and got on the phone. And that night, the church was full and it was a big event. It was wonderful. But I came back a week later. I Everybody went home except for me and one guy. He had some dates set up. He was a, a singer. We traveled together. He taught, He sang. I spoke for a week. When we came back to San Luis Obispo, this is all in California. I suppose we should have said that, Aaron. We came back to San Luis Obispo. Um, first of all, what struck me is there was people were still talking, but they weren't talking about me. They were talking about this amazing thing. That's like these 22 guys who came at their own expense. Uh, I, I think that's what made an impact. This kind of, it was a team thing. Uh, a Samson group started, but here's what I, I still sticks out to me this time. Uh, you know, all these years later, the core men in that, initial Samson group in San Luis Obispo were not the guys who came to the big event. It was that handful of guys who spent a few hours with us at the mini camp. 
It was those, it, it wasn't the big experience in the room, in the building that, that, that hooked people. It was time we spent together. Right. And, and to me, that really underlie, that underlines a key principle, a kingdom principle, which is bigger isn't always better. Kingdom things start small. And uh, yeah. I'll say too that you and I had talked quite a bit on the phone before that. And I, I think by that point, you had sent me a PDF of an early draft of your book. That, yeah. that had far more colorful language before Thomas Nelson screwed it up. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, anyway, we should post your original introduction, by the way. It was so much better. Um, so I, I, got, I got the concept, but that was the first time I got to be in a meeting, and it was yeah. not a good experience. The meeting itself was fine, and it was like, oh, I, I get it now. Like, you have to sit in yeah. it to get it. But then I remember the topic was fear. And yeah. when it came my turn to share, I shared as honestly as I could. And right afterwards, this pastor comes up to me and says, puts his hand on my shoulder. Like, oh, mm-hmm. we're already going condescending, are we? And he's yeah, like, yeah. I can tell that you're really just hiding. If you need someone to really talk to, just you know, give me a call and I'd be willing to hear your real yeah. story. I was so furious. I just remember the car ride back from the that mini camp back to San Luis with Nate mm-hmm. and Scott Phillips, and I was seething. And you were both doing a great job comforting me that no, no, they're, they're not supposed to do that. He just doesn't know how it's supposed to be because he was a guest there. So, yeah. but I think yeah. I bring it up because I think there a there are times where people are scared to enter in, and then they enter in, they're like, oh, this is simpler than I thought. But then how important it is that guys understand the core values of how this is supposed to work. Um, And even at the last meeting I was at, somebody had said something during their share time. And during the meeting after the meeting, I got to ask more questions and I heard more about it and it made more sense to me. But that's that's the purpose of the conversation after a meeting and to learn to do that wisely, but not to get scared away. Because, you know, who knows if I'm putting myself in someone's shoes that had that experience and thought I'm scared to go back because this one person said something that was really hurtful when I was trying to be vulnerable. Um, mm-hmm. You go again and you you sit with a person that feels safe <laughs> and some people don't always get those boundaries right away. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So following that initial uh, experience together. Uh, what was the next step? What happened next in the relationship between you two? And how did it turn into you two co-hosting this podcast? Well, as I recall, you know, Aaron, uh, the, the, uh, the David Mullen was really instrumental. He was the guy who had the vision for the podcast at the very beginning. And Mondo, uh, he enlisted Mondo as the engineer. Mondo didn't say anything, although he was the first guest. He was Mr. X. On, uh, he told his story, did his best, told it anonymously in that first episode. Um, Not anonymous anymore. Might have been 13 no. years ago, but you just outed him. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Mondo. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I made another trip out to California at Aaron's uh, invitation, and David came as well. Gosh, we went out. We met with the pirate, uh, the pastor pirates. Uh, on a, uh, on a, for a weekend retreat, got to meet 
you know, Aaron, Aaron did a fabulous job of creating a safe place for pastors of all denominations in that town to get together uh, and actually begin to share their lives together. Pastor Pirates was an amazing group. So, so um, Pastor Pirates, is that Aaron's group? Aaron, was that something you'd done? Had you done that pre- previously or what was that all about? Uh, no, it was after, after Nate had come. I'm like, all right, I'm going to start this. And uh, there was a, actually, no, that's not, what was my first thought? There was a pastor who had come to me and was struggling. And I said, well, let's, let's make a safe place for you. So I started that group for him and thought, yeah, I'll do it for six months or so. And then the ease out of it. And then like nine years later, it was still central to me, but there ended up being like at one point, 15 or so pastors from lots of denominations on retreats. The Presbyterians drank whiskey like fish and the Nazarenes had their diet Coke. So it was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were the Episcopalians? Episcopalians bring wine? My experience is Episcopalians are really good for quality wine. um. (laughs) So, yeah, but to go on with Nate's story, I came out, I think, the second time. I I would come out like once a year and stay in Nate's guest room, uh, which his bride's essential oils still make me feel like I'm coming into the Larkin home as my pillows would be scented with. And. That week, there were some changes in the podcast, and I said, well, I'll just record, I think, two or three episodes so that you have two or three weeks to figure out what you're going to do. And then by the time I got home, we figured out, man, over the years, we've done so many different versions of trying to do this uh, long distance. But that's, I just, I'm still the temporary guy that is waiting for Nate to figure something out. (laughs) So, yeah. so, Aaron, you're still filling in all these years later. We just, we all salute you for your service, sir. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, let's and, transition. And Aaron, oh, go ahead, Nate. Go ahead. I, I want to say, you know, Aaron really has, he has served as engineer during uh, seasons of the podcast. Uh, it isn't that he always stepped into the host role or the co-host role. He's just been, made himself available to do whatever, uh, needed to be done in order to get some material out to help the guys. And I just so appreciated Aaron's servant heart in all of this. This isn't a self-aggrandizing, you know, ego feeding activity for Aaron, best I can tell. Blah, blah, blah. All right. What's your next question, Tom? Well, let's move through this. It's a comment from Matt. Matt writes in, Nate and Aaron, thanks for your podcast. You guys are helping me think through some things I needed help with. I came for help with a certain thing, parentheses, <clears throat> close parentheses, and found myself, <laughs> I found myself encountering Jesus and realizing I am not alone in that struggle or in certain others. And I let off with that comment because I think Matt's comment typifies how a lot of us feel about the podcast. We might come here for one issue or another and then find ourselves finding an awful lot of insight in the wisdom of life. Um, You guys don't need to comment on that, but I just thought I'd bring that up and start off with Matt's comment. Um, Let's pivot to a a question from Travis. Aaron, why is it so dang hard to find your book? (laughs) I (laughs) I, I assume he means the Soul Architecture book. Yeah, he didn't say. He didn't say. So yeah. let's talk about that soul architecture book because we've heard that referred to periodically on the podcast. What's the deal with the book? Uh, well, 
Nobody wanted to publish it, mostly because I changed all the vocabulary for the Enneagram, because when I wrote it, the Enneagram was still not okay in church, uh, generally speaking. And so uh, Christianity Today put out an article at one point, and that was a huge turning point for the church going, oh, I guess it's okay. Christianity Today wrote about it. But when I wrote the book, I didn't want to bicker about why it was okay. That seemed like a really boring conversation. So by the time uh, publishers were looking at it, they're like, you're losing marketability because it's got this whole other language. So uh, it is available uh, probably still. I don't know. I don't look this stuff up. I'm, I'm looking right now for you, by the way. If, if you look up, if you just Google paste magazine if you put aaron porter paste magazine uh okay the third one down says aaron porter paste magazine and it's under books because there is also music up and when you click on that takes you to a page with one a novel not that book Jeez, can we just put a link in hey yeah sean would you mind putting a link in that'd be great okay so that was really boring. Sorry, you asked a technical question. I tried yeah, to give so, a technical answer. So, so what we're hoping is that uh, for Travis, that there'll be in the links some way that he can find a way to yeah. get your book and, and every and, other listener that's interested in that. And, and, and I the, think that the way, this the, has the, just been a brilliant. The, Aaron, I'm going to cut you off here because I am hosting, I'll remind you. And I just <laughs> think this was a brilliant <laughs> example of what makes this podcast so so real, so fresh, so winsome. Um, so it makes all of us, all of us feel like we fit right in the room with you. So Aaron, thank you for that. Uh, I'll and, give this much direction. You, I'm going to give this much direction. When you get to paste magazine, you just have to download. I think it's in like three forms. One that works with Kindle, a PDF, if you just want to read that. So just go do a quick sign up and it's easy. So wait, you're, you're basically right. saying a reader's got to publish the book themselves. They have to print it if they don't want to read it on the thing. But hey, if anybody out there wants to print a bunch for other people, let me know. Okay, very good. This one should be easier from Brian. On what topics, maybe it's not easier. This is comprehensive. On what topics have you guys' views changed since episode one? Topics where you've seen your views shift, develop, evolve, or change since episode one? Anything come to mind? Well, to me, to me, a, a lot of things continue to change. Uh, for one, I'm rethinking these days how best to describe myself as a recovering person. Uh, is it best for me to be saying these days I am a sex addict? Certainly, I have uh, a vulnerability to lust uh, and some deep subconscious programming that inclines me in times of stress and uncertainty and fear uh, in a certain behavioral direction. However, um, I'm, I'm starting to wonder how wise it is for me to continue labeling myself in that way. Mm-hmm. I've started thinking of myself these days as a porn survivor, mm-hmm. uh, as, as, as someone who, by the grace of God and with the help of God's people, has survived a life-threatening, family-threatening, uh, you know, long-term encounter with a very destructive force. 
uh, a force that actually threatens our entire culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not that I am uh, fundamentally different from anybody else uh, in, in terms of my, may, perhaps my susceptibility to some degree, but I'm not morally different from anybody else. Um, and I'm wondering whether, whether I have in a way shamed myself unnecessarily, taken too much responsibility, uh, shamed myself in a way that makes it difficult perhaps for some other people to admit a similar struggle. I, 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 I can't say that I've arrived at a, at, at a solid conclusion there. But I can feel the ground shifting. I feel like we need better vocabulary for this. How do we talk about, uh, you know, uh, porn and compulsive sexual behavior? Is addiction behavior, is addiction language the best language to describe what's going on? We can't abandon sin language. Certainly there is sin involved. But, uh, you know, what's the best way for us to describe this graciously and with a gospel perspective and one that uh, preserves human dignity and gives hope. I don't know. I, no, I feel like I just blathered a lot. Yeah. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. And I think it, one of the <clears throat> one of the things that does is several comments came in from different listeners that they appreciated openness, vulnerability, uh, examining things, flexibility. I think that's a good example of it, Nate. And, you know, I'm reminded Dr. Patrick Carnes himself said sex addiction was kind of an unfortunate label that got put on this thing early on because it's, yeah. it's my, kind of a shortcut. And uh, in our group, my group here in Kansas City, we'll, we do the, you know, standard 12-step intro thing. I'm Tom, grateful, recovering, sex addict, love child of God or whatever. And I'll find myself trying different things on compulsive sexual behavior disorder has become yeah. a more more useful phrase but Carnes himself said it at heart it's an intimacy disorder yes you're surviving from an intimacy disorder we've all had a broken intimacy attachment issue going on and we found sex as a way to cope right exactly exactly but, but your but your exploration i think is a is a really great invitation to everybody to not get locked down into some of the details but to come back up to the bigger view of who do i want to be as a person what has been holding me back? What are the consequences I'm struggling with? Is there a way forward to living a better life? And, and also to be flexible with the fact that for some people, that label turns them off immediately. And so they won't engage it because they don't feel like yeah. they are a sex addict. And so if you're going to force me to label myself, screw you, I'm out. For other people, it was life-saving for them to admit mm-hmm. that. And so just to realize that, okay, maybe there's just not one phrase or one set of vocabulary that is helpful, but to be flexible in that. Yeah. A few years what ago. What about I, you? What's changing for you, Aaron? I'm yeah. sorry. I'm not, I'm, I'm acting like I'm the host again. I'm sorry, Tom. You're the host. It's, it's your nature. It's good. Aaron, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, when you said from the first episode, I was trying to remember me back then and man i feel like a different human being i the first thing that comes to mind was i was still locked in in a lot of typical pastor mindsets about how i viewed god and life and Mm. from that time to this 
I feel like to me, the only thing that's interesting is who uh, is mine and other people's identities in Christ and coming to actually feel the gospel in the form of our dad's love for us. Mm. And so I think the biggest difference is how much I've come to not care about a lot of the minutia that I thrived on and loved to read books and loved having big words. I don't even remember the big words anymore. I don't care what someone's view on revelation is. I don't care what my view is, you know, just stuff that I poured my life into. So even in the podcast, when it comes to different issues, none come to mind specifically, except that I'm sure when I hear them and when I'm hearing people's stories, I'm just thinking of it from such a different perspective. And I was also way a control freak back then because God hadn't yet utterly uh, disciplined me over that issue. So when it, when it came to <laughs> yeah. issues in people's lives and stories, I really wanted to uh, fix it for them, whether it's intellectually fix it for them or get into their lives. Um, and so it feels very different to have conversations when you don't feel the pull to save people. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Brian, Brian continues on with one other question. Anything you remember saying on the podcast that now makes you cringe? I don't. The, I have a great forgetter, uh, which has uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's worked to my detriment uh, in recovery sometimes because I forget the consequences of acting out. But the upside is I, I forget all the stupid things I do and say. So, no, I don't remember anything. I'm sure that I would uh, wince and cringe probably at some of it were somebody to uh, if, if they had the energy to go back and find the more stupid, embarrassing things I've said. Yeah. There's no way that you can do 300 episodes of anything or 300 sermons and not be able to comb back through it and just go, what, what was that idiot talking about? Um, talking about, <laughs> talking about myself, not you, Nate. Um, but you yeah. know what I had, I, Somebody who was in my church, you know, I was a pastor for five years back in the 80s from 1982 to, 19, well, when was it? 83 to 89, 84 to 89, I guess it was. Um, a woman who was in my church at the time sent me a box of cassette tapes of my sermons uh, from, uh-huh. from oh those five years. Uh, and some of them, she said, you know, she says they're. You know, I've I've listened to some of these dozens of times, and they're so pivotal in my life. But you know, I don't have a tape player anymore, and and she sent them to me, and I'm so grateful that I don't have a cassette player. Oh I have no gosh. intent of buying a cassette player. I, I have one. I, I have one. Lend them to me. I want to hear. <laughs> I cannot bring myself to listen to. Uh, I wasn't even 30 years old. I was between 25 and 30 during. And what I was thinking and what I was saying, oh, my Lord, who knows? <laughs> That's great. The, the, the That's only great. specific one I remember, and I don't feel horrible about it, but I remember it was cringy, was we had a guest <laughs> on, and he had written a book, and it had something to do with words. And I, that's all I remember. I remember he also went through chronic pain. But anyways, I didn't know who the guest was until we got on. So all I knew was the title of the book. 
and it was about 15 minutes of questions where the title led me to think the book was about one thing. So all my <laughs> questions were in that direction. And at about 15 minutes in, he said something and it clicked. And I'm like, oh my gosh, none of these questions are relevant to you or your book. We've just been talking about <laughs> totally other things, which he graciously engaged all the conversations on. But I remember afterwards just shaking my head going, that was uh, utterly stupid. But again, but again, Aaron, that's what makes so many of us love this podcast. Hey, here's wow. a different one from, okay. from Jenna. Jenna says, listening to the podcast feels like therapy for us as listeners. Wondering if there has been a moment on the podcast where you felt confronted by a topic or something that was said made you realize there was something more or new you needed to work on in yourself. Oh, yeah. Oh. Again, I'm challenged to think of a particular episode because it ha happens with such regularity, actually. Uh, I love the fact that this podcast is unscripted because it's always a surprise and you never know what uh, you can't anticipate or prepare for or protect yourself from any particular insight or topic. And uh, sometimes it's been Aaron pulling me up short. Sometimes it's been something that a, a guest that has said that has just taken my feet out from under me. And sometimes you know, I'm sure that you guys experience this as well. Sometimes I'm, I, I'm prattling away, talking to another guy. My focus is entirely on him. And I hear myself saying something that I desperately needed to hear. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, it happens over and over for me in the podcast. This is doing the podcast is an essential part of my own spiritual development. Yeah, I, I, I echo all of that. I there are definitely times where the topic ends up being surprisingly relevant, and then mm -hmm. and definitely know that feeling where you are speaking into something, but you already know you're really just reminding yourself of the thing that's been lacking or missing and that's it's important i think that's why any deep conversations with other people about real life are so important because mm. one man's struggle is uh gonna be every man's journey now sean sent in a question for each one of you first for you nate he says nate i was very grateful for your vulnerability when you dropped a potential bomb in the podcast about a year ago stating that you'd had a slip but didn't offer many details. Would you be willing to share a bit about how you got there, maybe what it looked like, and your post-slip response? That's from Sean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, as I recall, that slip happened. Uh, <clears throat> it was post-COVID, so we are we're already we're in kind of uh, lockdown mode anyway. As I recall, well, no, gosh, that's not true. That's not true. I don't know why I was as isolated as I would have been because I know when it happened, but it was at about the time when Allie got yet another terrifying medical diagnosis, mm -hmm. and. Um, it amazes me uh, the degree to which I have, over the course of my life, gone to artificial intimacy, uh, lust in its various forms, in, for some kind of comfort uh, or, or in times of fear. My, my behavior, my addictive behavior is very much fear-driven. 
and uh, it was aided uh, by alcohol. If I am afraid and drinking, alcohol uh, lowers my inhibitions and uh, can, uh, uh, you know, numbs my ability to think. Um, so it was under the influence of alcohol and with a lot of fear that uh, I allowed myself to imagine uh, that I could just tip my toe back into the world of porn for just, I could just take, I could do it once. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was with my phone. It was in the privacy of my bedroom. It was, uh, you know, I'm going to do this. I came, I, I remember coming to in the morning, just feeling such regret and uh, self-recrimination and self-loathing and all that kind of stuff. And it actually, it took me a few days to find my feet again uh, and to uh, talk to my Silas about it and to, to get help. Uh, it's amazing how I very characteristically tried to fix it myself. Oh, that's what um, we do. That's what, yeah, Sure, that's sure. What do. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a humiliating behavior. And I didn't want to have to, I, uh, you know, I want to be the recovered guy and not the recovering guy. And, uh, you know, to be, admit a slip to a guy who hasn't had a slip in a few years, uh, you know, it's a humbling thing to do. It was a tough thing to do, but uh, I was, I was, I'm so grateful Dude, uh, I'm gonna, that I have, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give a, a props to Nate on this one. Because I so specifically remember when he started talking about publishing the book mm-hmm. and I said, I'm so worried for you because you're going back to a stage, but it's a stage built on you've figured this out. And the more you even say, I don't have it figured out, people just think you're humble and have it figured out, which leaves you no margin to screw up. And there's, I feel so afraid that when you hit a wall again, you're going to feel so much pressure to lie about it and hide, which will then just snowball. And I don't even remember your response to that. I don't think you said, no, that's not going to be a problem. I do remember you didn't say something (laughs) that stupid. Um, (laughs) But from that time to this, I mean, that was maybe 13 years ago or something. It's it's been great to see you in those moments, reach out to a Silas, talk about it. And so you've, you've kept the habit of not running to isolation for more than a day or two. Yeah. Yeah. So Sean's got a question for you, Aaron, Aaron, you have, you always approached God from a truly grace driven viewpoint, or was there a time when you struggled with performing for God? And if there was that time, what's made the difference for you? That's from Sean. The answer to the first part, as far as have I ever, I mean, that's very nice of you, Sean, to, to feel like I, however you phrased it, grace perspective. Uh, definitely not. I grew up in a normal performance-driven, basically legalistic church, although not, you know, they weren't mean about it, but it was still built on this is what you do, this is what you don't do if you're a good Christian. So, and I carried that with me. The biggest change for me was when I read Watchman Nee's The Normal Christian Life, the first hundred pages. Uh, that book was written off of talks he did. So 
to me after the first part, it kind of falls apart with feeling like a book that's all tied together. But that was when I realized that I had no idea what it was to, to be a Christian. I only knew what it was to act like a Christian. Um, Mm. and so that began the journey that up to this day is just like, Oh, this is the point. This is, this is for peasants. I don't need to read another book and find another thing. I need, I, I just want to experience this. I want to feel it. I want to see that it changes how I see myself and others. And if it doesn't work for anything practical, then I think probably it's all a lie. Mm-hmm. But I've found that the gospel does change everything practically. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that's that would be the answer to that. And I'm I'm so yeah. grateful that in my young 20s, I bumped up against the fact that uh, I had no idea what it meant to be a Christian. I had never been taught. Do you remember the first time you used the term? Gospeliciousness, because <laughs> I, I, I love it when you when you un, unspool that that thing. I just laugh uh, when I hear you talking about gospelicious. I, so. <laughs> I I vaguely recall that it was in a sermon, and my sermons did not come with very detailed notes, so it just seemed appropriate, and then it made me smile every time I've ever thought it or said it. So I love things that are gospelicious. I love that. Well, let's pivot on that, Aaron, just a little bit and move to an aggregate group of questions that came in regarding you. Um, Good use of the word aggregate. Hey, Nate, can you tell me what it means? (laughs) (laughs) There's there's a summary here of a, a number of people who mentioned that they all know or parenthetically, we might we might we might say they think they know. Uh, Nate's secrets, because Nate has been so uh, open, Uh, but they don't feel like they know Aaron's life or struggles at all. Uh, Apparently, there were a number of questions that had different flavors of this. So, Aaron, I wonder if you'd be willing to address this vague issue. The last time I touched myself and how it went. and No, 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 no. no, I'm not done. Question's not done. okay. Okay. All right, it's, it's a paragraph. Kind of Aaron, a I wonder if you'd be willing to address this issue, or you can approach it philosophically, metaphorically, or however you feel good about it. Just remember, you don't <laughs> tend, and this is important, Aaron, this is for you, uh-huh, this is me uh-huh. saying this, I don't think you tend to re-listen to the podcasts after they've been taped and posted. <laughs> so uh, if that's right, remember that what you say here will hang here forever until the internet melts. So, Aaron. <laughs> oh, that's great. Wait, you're, you're so good at making me not feel defensive at a question like that. Because the first thought is, I've, I think I've said a lot of personal stuff on here. What are you talking about? But I, I totally know what they're saying. Um, and there, there's two answers to it that I hope will be, that will explain it and possibly be instructive. One, uh, Nate had this great opportunity to tell his story with his wife's blessing. Yes. And couldn't tell it until she gave it. Right. So much of my story hinges on other people's stuff. And I have zero compulsion to bring my story into something if it's going to shame other people. It's just, 
and and this is important. Nate said so many times, everybody doesn't have to know all the details, but somebody has to know all the details. And I have such a great group of friends that know all those stories. It's not that the stories aren't told, but that they aren't appropriate to tell to just a, a, mm-hmm. a mass of people I don't know when it's going to shame or hurt other people. So that's that's the biggest reason. Because as both of you will testify, I'm a bit of a blabbermouth with my own stuff and probably say awkwardly uh, revealing things. So I don't mind talking about it. Uh, It's just not appropriate in that way. But there's another part that comes to mind with this question that I think is interesting. If, If I'm interested in, say, a musician or an actor, some public figure... And I, it's bizarre to even say that this is in that same category because honestly, for years, probably until we started doing the retreats, this was just me having a conversation with Nate and some other interesting person each week. I really didn't think anyone was listening to it. And that was fine. I was like, yeah, this is my time to hang out with Nate each week. Um, so it's, it's weird to, to say, okay, this is in that same public forum. But if I'm interested in somebody's music, I can Google them and I expect to be able to find all the details of their life. Right. It's part of our culture. And so part of me is like, well, Hey, to whomever wants that story, let's sit down and have coffee sometime and you'll get a lot, a lot of that story. But I personally don't feel compelled to simply self reveal because it's part of our cultural structure. Uh, I, I just don't feel compelled to do that. Got it. Got it. I I will say this though, for the sake of those that are like, well, Nate's a porn addict. Are you going to say you're a porn addict? Uh, (laughs) I am, I am absolutely an intimacy junkie and I have used porn in the past forever. Uh, you know, going back to probably sixth grade when I, first found a torn up playboys in a homeless person's stash in the river behind my house. But I have found that really I am hooked on having a fantasy, an idea that I can just ruminate on and pretend that somehow that touches my life because I'm so hungry for that. Um, and porn is just one of many tools to use that. That's just way more my thing, which is why I've said on the show before, I'm a, I'm a face guy. I'm, some guys are like, I'm a boob guy. I'm a butt guy. No, I'll, I would look forever for simply a picture of a person. I'm like, oh, I see in your face something that looks like truth and that I can attach to that. Mm. Aaron, I really appreciate that answer. And that's actually yeah. tremendously revealing, I think. So thank you for trusting us all with that. Uh, let me shift. Um, there's a, uh, These uh, comments came in from Paige. I'm going to zip through these very quickly. Paige writes, congratulations on Podcast 300. I've been a faithful listener to the Pirate Monk Podcast for over three years now. Also been thankful for the new online women's support that is being offered. And then she enumerated a few ways in which she's found this podcast to be so beneficial to her. Paige writes, your sense of humor and your laughter. I listen to a lot of podcasts about sexual integrity issues because it is such a deep and heavy topic. There's often not a lot of laughter involved. 
but I'm always sure to get a laugh when I listen to the Pirate Monk podcast, even if I'm rolling my eyes at the same time. And I think a lot of us Quick, appreciate Nate, that. Say, <laughs> say something funny. <laughs> that, I think, that's I really think a lot funny. of us there's got, there's got to be a... What, go what Aaron? Uh, it, it, oh, I was just going to say, there's got to be a lot of women that uh, feel that same way when we're being a bit boyish. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that Y chromosome just causes a lot of eye rolling, I know. Uh, second, you've given me hope that men who, are, men who are trapped in sexual addiction can change the pattern of their lives. It's good to hear the stories from you and others. Uh, third, she said, it's obvious that you're also on a learning journey. I think you're the only podcast I listen to where you're willing to say that you don't always agree with everything that a guest says or admit that you weren't sure about having someone on the podcast. Uh, four, I love that you read mail that comes in and it makes me uh, feel like those of us who are in your listening audience are also having a conversation with you. Uh, and then finally, she said, I appreciate nice. you acknowledge the incredible betrayal trauma that wives go through when they are married to a man who struggles with sex addiction and or compulsions. After D-Day, I worked hard on my marriage for several years and I was faced with sticking to boundaries that resulted in a divorce. Um, I'm well aware there's an enemy seeking to kill, steal, and destroy all of us. Thanks for bringing things back to Jesus and the gospel and grace over and over again to remind us that there is always hope. So, well done, guys. That all from Paige. Uh, Nate, here's a question from Rob. Nate says, or Rob says, Nate, did being a sex addict ever cost you a client? Have there ever been any other impacts on your professional life of being so vocal? about your story well you know that's a that's a good question i guess uh in my uh did it, has it ever cost me a client uh in my forensic engineering business no i don't think so i don't know that very many of the clients in the forensic engineer uh, any of my clients actually know the story um certainly there have been churches that have been uh, reluctant, resistant, uh, hesitant, or outright hostile to the idea of having me come and speak. I've had now and again invitations offered and then rescinded. I've also had people, uh, you know, send long questionnaires in advance of an appearance, wanting to know what I will and won't talk about. Uh, although I've noticed that uh, as the years have gone by, uh, that fear has subsided and been replaced with uh, a growing eagerness for and an, and an appreciation for authenticity. And more and more uh, churches are just saying, uh, please just come and say whatever you need to say and uh, address any topic that comes up. And we don't want to impose any filters because I think the recognition is dawning on the church at large. That, that the entire culture, including the church, is under threat. And uh, we have to stop uh, hiding from it. So right. uh, if anything, I think, I think my willingness to tell my story has given me a bigger platform. I, I have a uh, – Mr. Tom, can I ask a question? Sure. Uh, I don't think I know this about you, Nate, but when you got those rejections, yeah, because you have a much more connected and people-pleasing streak in you, yeah. so how did that make you feel? Did that end up poking into that, 
or because you had a community that accepted you so much, it rolled off you in a different way. Yeah, it wasn't as devastating as it as it would have been. Uh, you know, certainly I have this kind of the shame reaction. If you don't like what I'm going to say, then you don't like me, and there must be something wrong with me. Uh, but but I think at this point, uh, you know, I'm firm enough in an understanding that God has set us on a path, and that uh, you know, I've got a message that. Not everybody is willing to hear, but that doesn't mean that, that, the, that the message itself is flawed. And I don't need to take it personally uh, when somebody's not ready to hear it. That's great. This is from LS. Now, this is kind of pivoting into uh, group dynamics, recovery dynamics, that kind of stuff that we cover on the podcast. My first year recovery went well, but the second year has been kind of rough. How common is that? What have you guys seen in the trajectory of others' recoveries? Second year, rougher than the first. Yeah, I would think that's pretty characteristic. That certainly was my case. Uh, you know, you had the enthusiasm of the initial discovery. You got the pink cloud that goes on. Uh, uh, it, it's, uh, the first few weeks and months of recovery are absolutely euphoric. At least they were for me. Um, but you know, recovery requires us if we're actually going to recover, uh, to deal with deep issues and, uh, our, you know, reluctance to, you know, and resistance to facing those issues can really slow our progress. Uh, and then, you know, in my case, I was a champion slipper for my first three years. And I would say my my uh, my slips really accelerated during year two because I was I mean, it was it was hard work I was having a hard time doing it so I was jumping on and off the wagon for 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 a while there and that's there's uh, con- there's confusion with all good things because it brings new things into your life yeah uh, I mean you want to go to an extreme it seems obvious with something like a compulsive behavior but even the gospel. In my life, the more I experienced it, the more I experienced holy apathy, where I didn't care about things that I shouldn't have cared about. But then I also found that I just became apathetic and couldn't figure out the difference between holy apathy and regular apathy. So it's anytime you've got these good changes coming, and David Hampton certainly writes about it in his book, you've got a whole list of new challenges, and some of those challenges push you back into the old behavior. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's part of the journey. Yeah. I want to sure. ask Tom, because Tom, Tom, you've got your own recovery story and you walk through lots of guys with recovery. Do you, do you agree that that kind of, that's a, the pattern is common? The second year, yeah, the second year is rougher than the first? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it over and over. And, and, uh, and then there are guys that really have trouble and I was among them. Uh, getting to sustain sobriety, it's it's tr- it's problematic. I went through a certification process with ITAP with Carnes's organization. One of the things they talked about was a lot of a lot of guys, and and my goodness, particularly when we've got um, a hurt spouse who's trying to recover from betrayal trauma, you want to get this right and never go back. You know, yeah, never yeah, yeah. More hurt, and that. That can that can double back and bite you because then it really makes it harder to come clean when you are struggling. Uh, but very yeah. honestly, so many guys um, start off well or start off sincerely, 
Um, but there are multiple reasons why guys will have trouble mm-hmm. with getting traction recovery. And sometimes it's maybe an inadequate first step. They really haven't come to terms with the powerlessness and the un- and the lack of manageability mm-hmm. that they've got. Step one stuff. But other times, maybe it's an insufficient program. They're, they're doing a little bit, but they need to be doing more and they need more tools. They need more help. Maybe they need therapy. And for so many, and Nate, I know this has popped up on a podcast recently uh, over and over again. Um, there's unresolved trauma. And we got to be careful yes. with the term trauma because trauma becomes one of those terms that so many guys just turn it off. Go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the term du jour. That's what everybody's talking about. Trauma this, trauma that. I didn't have any trauma. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. if you're human, you've sustained some level of trauma. <laughs> that's just what it yeah, means. Nobody escapes it. childhood unscathed. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. it. And it doesn't mean that we're pointing fingers or looking to fix blame or saying, well, my parents were this or that or the other thing. Or conversely, my parents were great. My family was great. Life's hard. We all have vulnerabilities. Yeah. You could grow up in a perfect yeah. family, but you're not going to be a perfect child. So we see people that get get uh, get hit just the wrong way. And uh, one of the therapists I know says it just takes one experience at the wrong time with a certain kind of personality to just freeze a part of a guy's emotional life at that spot. Yes. And we and mm. we need help. Mm. We need help going back and finding those spots and getting unfrozen. And a lot yeah. of guys need help that they don't recognize that they need help. So yeah, I've seen this over and yeah. over. Yeah, you know? yeah. Okay, uh, JM uh, wrote in several questions. First one: What is the one, or he could say two or three, top skills or tools that you've seen be the most helpful or life changing? For you or for other men you've walked with in recovery? Again, what's the one, two, or top three skills or tools that have been most helpful or life-changing for you or for other guys you've walked with in recovery? Either one of you. Yeah. I would say the number one rule for recovery is don't hide. Mm. So we're hiders. This is a, this is a uh, and we hide out of, f- of fear and we hide out of pride and we hide for conscious reasons and some conscious subconscious reasons uh, breaking that pattern of hiding and the practical way you do it is by having regular contact ideally daily contact with another person to whom you disclose exactly as best you can what you're feeling what you're thinking what you're doing and what you're thinking of doing uh that's the secret sauce for recovery in my book. And I would say for me uh, personally and with people I've walked with, realizing that the problem that we are so fixated on uh, getting healing from is a symptom and ultimately a practical gospel understanding will be the answer like at its core, because it gives us the identity, it removes the shame, it takes away so much of the power that led us to inappropriate behavior and sinful Mm. behavior. But that's so hard to believe. Sometimes, whether it's a broken and hurting marriage, triage has to be done to stop bleeding. But then it's got to pause because if we only focus on the problem, I want to stop looking at porn, I want to stop drinking, we get so fixated on the thing that it's impossible to get beyond it. 
and we certainly don't go into abundant life. We just go into like lockdown where if I don't, yeah. if, if I just stay right here, I won't screw this up. And that's just unhelpful. So yeah, it sounds like a churchy answer and I hate that it does, but the fact that the gospel foundationally is the solution to all of these problems when I encounter it in a real and practical way and not just a churchy way. Yeah, great. I like that, Aaron. I like it. Oh, yeah, and it's not churchy at all. Um, Again, from JM, what are common mistakes you see guys making as they get into recovery? Common mistakes. I think that goes back to Nate's point. The mistake is I think I can go back to doing it alone. And especially I think that two-year mark is in part because if you get a year of success, you start to get a little confidence, and there's nothing worse than confidence in a human being. And not not an addict, a human being. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Well said. Uh, finally, from JM, uh, he's a young guy with uh, three little kids. Any advice to people doing recovery with young kids in the home? Any thoughts off the top of your heads? Any advice to the young guys, young guys you've walked with or when you guys were younger? Well, you know what? I I think that, you know, if we really love our kids, then uh, we want to model for them uh, humility, vulnerability, and grace. Those are the things that we need for our own recovery. And those are the very things that we need to um, exhibit toward our kids. They need to see it. They need to see that in the way we deal with a spouse, the way we deal with them. Uh, yeah. So even before the children are sexually aware or they know what the fundamental, well, you know, what the behavioral issues are, uh, if they see the fruits of recovery in the gracious way that we, in the humble way, uh, open way and fearless way in which we admit our own failures, if they can see us asking for help, if they can, uh, uh, you know, see us exhibiting those fruits of the spirit, I think that's going to, they're going to have their own challenges and they're going to have their own journey, but we're giving them a set of tools that actually will help them down the road. Uh, Two things come to mind for me. One that was practically very helpful is when I'm struggling and having a hard time, even when the kids were younger, just to tell them instead of just Mm. trying to buck up and pretend or even feel like I need to be an example of something I'm not feeling, I would tell them, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I'm feeling really sad right now. Can you be extra sensitive to me? And I, I feel like they took that as an honor to get to do that. I'd usually get extra hugs and things like that. Um, hmm. And, and then the second part of that is if I'm on day three of needing to tell my kids that they need to be sensitive to me, then it's probably time for me to start dealing more proactively. <laughs> like I'll give myself a very small window of that before if it's going on, that becomes a marker. You need to be talking to some other guys. You need to be dealing with this. Let's start working through this. So those are my first, my two thoughts. Uh, those are great. Those are great. Uh, from Mike, um, I believe what I've that I've heard what I've heard that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but connection and relationship. Any advice on how to cultivate healthy relationships without seeming needy, clinging, or smothering? 
I often find, like every other aspect of life, my compulsive addict nature often turns relationships sour as I get my feelings hurt when people don't love me exactly like I want them to or do what I want. It's a pretty vulnerable question. Any any thoughts for Mike? Moving in the opposite direction from addiction to connection, but uh, how to do that in a healthy way when there's that obsessive or compulsive part of the nature that can sometimes can, can we be across. really honest with with this answer it, it yeah it, there are because when he's describing i'm i seem to push people away at a certain point now i don't know if this is the case for him but i immediately thought of a handful of people i know that desperately want to reach out but they haven't yet learned how to do it in a way that doesn't feel awkward and most people who struggle with those skills know they struggle with those skills. They, they, I mean, this letter is great that this question he's, he's saying, I know this happens. So how do I develop those skills where I can be honest and vulnerable, not put expectations on people, but let them love me how they can. That would, that would be the only thing I would say is you can't script out how everybody's going to react let them do their best to love you. But Nate, what would you say to a person that knows I, I feel I'm socially awkward and I have seen, I have evidence of people pulling away from me when I try to push in. How does a person start taking steps and saying, I'm getting some tools on how to make it safer to be my friend? Yeah, boy, that's a good, that's a good question. I, I, I have appreciated just kind of the uh, the structure of the Silas relationship, or when I was active in twelve step recovery, the the the, the sponsor relationship, where the uh, it's there's this clear expectation that we are going to uh, have a regular conversation, um, but it's going to center on the issues. It's going to get right down to business. Um, we're, uh, you know, it's going to be based on honesty, and then we are going to um, detach. I don't know. I'm, I'm probably not the best guy to answer this question because, uh, you know, my attachment disorder manifests itself in a different way. I, I, I'm not the clingy guy who wants too much. Uh, you know, I'm the guy who finds it difficult to connect. So I'm more of a hit and run guy. Um, but I do know that for a lot of my good friends, especially in sex addiction recovery, this really is the battle that they want too much. Yeah. Um, what What is his name again, Mister Tom? Mike. 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 I, I I feel so much just with what he wrote. Like my my heart is feeling for you, Mike. One one thing that can be practically helpful, maybe if you recognize this has been a pattern, is when you start this relationship with a person. I think Nate's totally right. The Silas relationship gives natural boundaries, but for you to straight up tell the person, Hey, I struggle with this. Would you be willing to tell me when I seem to be making you feel like I'm pushing in too hard or being clingy and you feel uncomfortable? Would you be willing to tell me, Hey, you're doing that thing. I'm here. I love you, but don't, don't do that. But actually establishing some vocabulary creates vulnerability and honesty in the place that you feel like has 
has failed you in the past. And that's what you need brothers to be in it with you on. Yeah. That's really helpful. That's really helpful, guys. Well, uh, final wrap-up question. When you guys have wrapped up a podcast where you thought, hey, that went really well, or I think that went really Mm -hmm. well, what was it that happened in the podcast that made you feel that way? That's a great question. What, Nate, what do you got? What have I got? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I am an authenticity, honesty, and and gospel junkie. I'll tell you what. If when, When there is a moment of authentic disclosure and then the gospel shows up, uh, that's, that's as close to an orgasm, I guess, I, that I'm going to get. It's, <laughs> that was too it's, much information, uh, Nate. Yeah. But, but no, I have a physiological response to it. Yeah. Uh, the gospel is that powerful and, I, and, and it's that pleasurable. Um, I think, you know, we all deeply need connection and we need meaning. We live in a culture at a time that sees existence as happenstance and uh, most of life as meaningless. And there's an awful lot of pretense and an awful lot of surface engagement. And when we go deep and connect and meaning arrives, uh, I think that brings us close to what we were designed to experience anyway. And we get those moments uh, in the podcast. That's what makes a great show for me. Yeah. yeah. How about you? Well, it's hard to add to that. That was all great. Uh, personally, I am wired to be a more aggressive sort of fellow. Uh, and the thing that makes me the most furious in the universe is churchianity that cuts the legs off and sucks the heart out of the gospel. So yeah. when there is a guest on that is saying stuff or engaging in a conversation that feels like this can be a block for a listener to lose the bullshit churchianity that has kept them from the person and work of Christ and the love of their dad. When that conversation is happening, I'm through the, Mm. through the roof stoked. Hmm. Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, guys, we passed an hour and uh, we worked through most of the questions. Listeners, if uh, you sent something in there, we wouldn't get to my apologies. But um, I wanted to close with something. Uh, we'd had several observations from a woman named Paige, who's been a longtime listener. Erin, <clears throat> as you know, she sent in a uh, song that she'd written. It was based on a verse from uh, Zephaniah. Uh, but there are a couple of lines in what she had written as she shared the lyrics of that song that I wanted to close with. Um, Page wrote, we want to see every man and woman walk free of sexual brokenness, walk free of hiddenness, walk free of broken vows, walk free of regrets. God invites us to cling to his goodness, even in the midst of the storm. He invites us to join him in the song he sings over us, the song of redemption, the song of forgiveness. The song of resurrection, the song that calls out the spark that God put inside us, that image of God that is always there. We join this song because of love. 
Wow. Yeah, I read those and reread those lines, and I thought, that's it, Pete. You hit it. That's what this podcast does for us in surprising ways, in authentic ways, in uh, real ways. And I think that's what's given it legs and why it speaks to so many of us in so many different ways. Um, So, brothers, well done. Well done, and thank you. And thank you, Tom. Thanks for uh, stepping up and doing the hosting duties this week. And it's so good to hear your voice. And it is a, is a face. deep yeah. honor to find that we get to have a role in people's lives that we've never even met. That's that's pretty humbling, pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, God willing, we'll be back next week with the 301st episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Until then, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And that's Tom. And he's Tom. (laughs) He's Tom. (laughs) (laughs) And this week, we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.